So we're reading from Romans chapter 3, which is on page 1130. And we'll start reading at verse 1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every, every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Thank you, Sarah. Heavy words again this morning, and we're going to um, think them through together. But I want, to, I want to start here. I want to start in an airport. If you've ever been through an airport, you'll know the moment you, you get off the plane. You've traveled along miles of travelators doing the whole passive-aggressive walking thing because you, you want to get ahead of the queue at passport control. And you finally get through passport control, having sort of worked out which, which is going to be the fastest way through the queue. Uh, you've gone to the luggage hall, you've collected your bags, checking the labels, make sure they really are yours. And then you come to the moment of decision. Customs. Nothing to declare, or goods to declare. And your mind 
quickly races through the, the purchases that you've made while you've been away. Anything I'm not meant to have with me, and trying to look as confident as you can, you walk through, nothing to declare. But you're always slightly anxious that someone's going to stop you and demand to open your suitcases and go through your luggage and, and discover that somehow you've broken the rules. You can tell I really don't like airports. Well, step back into that luggage hall and look up again at those two custom signs. Except this time, imagine that they say righteous and unrighteous. Those are your two choices of channel. No cheeky EU citizens channel here. Just two options, righteous and unrighteous. The custom officials are there. They're they're ready to, to search your life to check that it really matches up to your answer. Which way will you turn? Righteous or unrighteous? It's tricky, isn't it? If you're a self-deprecating Brit, you don't want to be seen walking through the righteous channel. How arrogant is that? But walking through the unrighteous channel, well, there are consequences. Costly consequences. To ask yourself, how would you label yourself honestly? What label would you stick on, righteous or unrighteous? I know I'm pushing the point, but Paul is pushing the point here in Romans 3. We're we're a fifth of the way through this letter. And uh, if you've been with us, you won't have missed it. Again and again, Paul is asking us, how do we view ourselves? Are we righteous or unrighteous? Really, truly, deep down, how do we understand humanity? It's actually a question that the whole Bible demands we answer. I don't normally like doing this, but um, stick your service sheet in Romans 3 and turn with me to, to Psalm 14. Right in the middle of the Bible, page 549, Psalm 14. I'm going to read this psalm, and as, as I do, listen to the two categories of people that are being spoken of here. And ask yourself, who am I? Who am I meant to be in this psalm? you there? Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. That's Psalm 14. And I chose this psalm because it's one of the psalms Paul quotes in our our verses in Romans 3 this morning. But there was no shortage of psalms to choose from. Again and again, we get this pattern, the righteous and the unrighteous. And, And we're meant to be asking this question, who am I? Am I part of the evildoers in verse 4? Or am I part of the company of the righteous? Verse 5. 
And you're keen to know because it makes a big difference. Psalm 1 tells our same two groups, and Psalm 1 says, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Which am I? Which are you? Don't shortchange yourself with an easy answer here. We need to get this. Paul has spent a lot of time in Romans so that we get this. So here's what we're going to do. Um, Here are our headings. They're there on the back of your um, service order as well. And we're going to look at how we respond to God's truth. And then we're going to see how God responds to us. Because Paul started this letter to the Romans by demonstrating that God is a God who reveals himself and reveals his truth. This gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, it has appeared. It's been revealed. But so has the truth of a judgment day, when all of us will stand before our creator God. God's revealed his truth. And how do we respond? Well, back in chapter 1, Paul's argument was that we, humanity as a whole, we distort God's truth. We call that which is good bad, and we call that which is bad good. If you're not there already, flick back to to Romans and uh, just look at the end of chapter 1. Romans 1 verse 32. We looked at this verse a few weeks back. Romans 1 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you hear things that God in his word tells us are wrong, harmful, deserving of death? It's as if we, we cross out God's health warning on those things and we call them one of our five a day. The bad is called good. The good is called bad. So the nativity story, dangerous fundamentalism, kick that out of schools. Instead, let, let's teach our seven-year-olds sex education and tell them that promiscuity is the norm. You see, we see this happening all around us. But actually, Romans 1 is saying it's about each of us. Don't, don't just think out there. Think in here. We'll all be doing this in our own way. Humanity in our sinful natures, we are truth distorters. It's as if we get to the the customs gate and and we switch the signs. We take down the unrighteous and hang up righteous in its place. We distort the truth. And then a couple of weeks ago, Romans chapter 2, we saw um, that we depend on having the truth. So chapter 2, Paul is, is challenging the religious the upright Jews of his day, the the churchgoers of today. And he's simply saying, having the truth isn't enough. That's what the Jews thought. They thought, we're we're Jewish. We're God's special people. Of course we're righteous. It's as if they were rocking up at at the customs gate, piling straight into the the righteous channel and and showing their passport. I've I've got the right passport. Let me through. But the reply simply comes, I don't want to see your passport. I really want to see your life. That's verse 13 of Romans 2. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. 
The passport doesn't matter. To walk through the gate of righteousness requires perfect obedience. Actually, I was thinking about this more in the week. It's been on my mind because I grew up in a, in a Christian family, lovely Christian parents, and um, in some way, when someone asks me to, to share how I became a Christian, I feel slightly embarrassed of the fact that I grew up in a Christian family, as though in some way that disqualifies my testimony. But actually, that's a complete nonsense. The Bible tells me that in my sinful nature, I was a wretched sinner opposed to God, hating his truth, and I needed a miracle to take place in my life, just as each of us do. If Caleb continues as a a lifelong follower of Jesus, and we pray that he will, that will be a miracle of God's grace. Same miracle God uses to save any one of us. Can you see my my nervousness about my testimony is actually a a sort of functional dependence on the truth. As if to say, it's fine, I was was in a Christian family, you know, that, that will get me into heaven. That won't help me on judgment day. On judgment day, I'll have needed the truth of God to take hold of my life and to radically change me. But it is very easy for us to depend on having the truth. And then um, this morning's verses, um, first eight verses of chapter three, we're not going to dive in deep here in these first, the first half of this passage. Um, I want to spend time on the second half, but we need to see that we divide the truth. That's the first eight verses here. We settle for part of the truth, which is really no truth at all. So chapter three, verse one, you'll see Paul's writing this chapter as though he's responding to a series of theoretical questions that have been asked. So verse one, theoretical question, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Paul's response, verse 2, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The Jews are blessed, says Paul, because God has given them his word, his law. He chose them to be his people. Ha! comes the question in verse 3. What if some, some Jews were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Do you get a sense of it here? that The all-powerful God chooses a particular people to be his special people, but some of those chosen people prove to be unfaithful. Well, doesn't that question God's faithfulness? Verse 4, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. No, 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 says Paul. It doesn't question God's faithfulness. It questions humanity's faithfulness. And then comes the little interchange in verses 5 to 8. Question comes in, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Paul responds, certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Do you catch the argument here? 
God's grace is wonderful. It's an extraordinary thing that a group of sinful men and women, boys and girls, can gather here this morning to to sing praise to him, to pray to him, to hear his word to us. It's an extraordinary thing. He has done an amazing thing. But the question comes in, well, surely the more sinful we are, the more extraordinary that is. And so the more amazing God appears. I guess it's like everyone piling through the righteous channel at the customs gate. God just waving them in. And the more unrighteous the people he waved through the righteous channel, the more generous God looks. You can see that argument, but if you think that way, you've divided the truth. You're you're saying God is only glorious when he saves. When he brings people from darkness to light, when he makes people more like his son. God is glorious then, wonderfully glorious. But we mustn't doubt that God is also glorious when he judges, when, when he punishes the wicked. We think that's less glorious. I guess I'm not alone in finding it much easier to speak about a God who forgives than a God who judges, as though a God who forgives, well, he's glorious. A God who, who judges, better hide him away. Slightly embarrassed by that God. And yet, we long for justice. We hate it when evil goes unpunished. God is glorious in rescuing, but he's also glorious in judgment. A right judgment. And we mustn't divide his truth. So that's the letter so far up to the end of chapter 3 verse 8 God's truth is revealed and we respond to his truth by distorting it changing it by holding on to it but thinking that is enough and not letting it change us or we divide it I like this bit God not really so keen on that bit of your truth and verses 9 to 20 are God responding to us have a listen to verse 9 at how he responds What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They're harrowing verses. You sense that as as Sarah is reading them to us. It it is a tapestry of quotes from five Psalms and the book of Isaiah. And it is as if God is saying that that tension that we've noticed, when you read the Old Testament, how am I to read it? Who am I to read myself? Righteous, unrighteous. Here's your answer. There is no one righteous. Not even one. Not, not one of us can step into that channel of righteousness. If someone stops and asks to open a suitcase of our lives, you know you're in trouble. In fact, just take your words. They're in view, verse 13. Notice 
the progression here. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The direction is from inside throats, out tongues, lips, the words that come out of them. What comes out reveals what is in. Cursing and bitterness, poison and deceit, and ultimately, death. Our words condemn us. True for me, so many words which tear down rather than build up, which bring death rather than life. True for each one of us, our words condemn us. Or have a look at verse 15. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. So this again is lives which delight in pulling others down. Verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways. So the sense here is have a look back at your life. See the trail of destruction that you have left. And don't pretend it's all in the past. The future doesn't look much brighter. Verse 17, and the way of peace they do not know. Lives examined, God's verdict comes in and ultimately we fall short. Every one of us. These aren't happy words. We wrestle with these words. Um, Ben Elton, comedian, funny man, but thoughtful man. He was on a a BBC panel discussion and was asked um, the rather deep question, what do you think of humanity? Such a telling reply. He said, I believe the sum total of good in humanity outweighs the sum total of evil, despite evidence to the contrary. That's what we want to think. We want to think the best of humanity. And so wickedness surprises us. You won't have missed the news over the past month. Um, So many sexual harassment cases coming to light. In fact, um, in many cases, harassment is far too weak a word. Sexual abuse, after sexual abuse, is revealed. And it's politicians and actors and chief execs and academics and sports personalities. I don't think there's been a walk of life that has not been involved. And we've seen contracts cancelled and positions resigned. And it keeps coming. You've probably seen the hashtag MeToo campaign. Every hashtag MeToo that is posted to social media is another person revealing that they've been a victim. And the stats are extraordinary. So during the first 24 hours of the hashtag MeToo campaign, 4.7 million Facebook users posted hashtag MeToo. 4.7 million sexual harassment victims coming forward in just one day. And Wikipedia has created a page to to track the campaign and to, to capture the list of the accused, those good and great, where allegations have been made. We'll have to forgive the fact that this slide is out of date because um, the Wikipedia list is growing by the day and I just couldn't keep up. There are a lot of names and you're not meant to be able to read them. You're just meant to notice that there are a lot. Famous people, every walk of life, and the list is growing. And then hear the words of our Creator God. There is no one righteous not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
pretty hard to argue against, isn't it? In fact, I wonder whether the big surprise about the recent revelations has been that it has been a big surprise. Should we really be surprised? Appalled, yes, but not surprised. It's as if we assume that if you have got this customs channel for righteous and unrighteous, loads of people piling through the righteous channel. And yes, there'll be a few going through the unrighteous channel, but just a few. But the evidence suggests otherwise. And the Bible tells us otherwise. There is no one righteous, not even one. God proves that our self-righteousness, our human optimism, is wrong. But then, just very briefly, and more on this next week, just notice how these verses end. Because here is a God who offers to make us right. We're just given a hint of hope at the end of these verses. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Can you get the scene? This is the courtroom moment. So testimonies have been given, defenses spoken, and now there is silence in the courtroom as the judge declares his verdict. Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, I realize you're thinking it doesn't sound very hopeful, actually, John. But can you hear the little hint of hope? The language is of God declaring us righteous. Of a, of a just judge whose decree is final. And we've seen we'll, we'll never earn that righteous decree through keeping the law. No, the, the law will again and again show us that we need a different way. First two and a half chapters of this letter, they're, they're meant to leave us crying out for a different way. I want to be able to read the Psalms and claim the promises of the righteous, not fall under the judgment of the unrighteous. But I'm told my life will never be enough for that. Open the suitcases of my life and the contents will appall you and your lives will appall me. But actually standing at the entrance of customs is a friend. He's a friend who says, take my bags through customs and walk straight through that righteous channel. Walk through with confidence. Walk through hoping that they'll stop you and open the bags and see what is inside because all that lies within is glorious sinless perfection that is a God who declares someone righteous through unmerited grace we need those bags and we'll hear more how to take hold of them next week I'm going to hand over to Steve